Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 8, Sarah in Siberia. At the end of the last episode, we saw how Sarah and her mother, having joined the October 1941 wartime exodus from Moscow, traveled by freight train to Siberia and found themselves with nowhere to live. Invited to the remote mining town of Cheremkhova by three young women, sisters they knew from back home, Sarah and Gita schlepped another 900 miles east, only to find no one waiting to greet them. We left Sarah about to give up on hearing from the friends who'd invited them out there in the first place. And that's when a letter from the youngest of the sisters, Valya, arrived. She was on her way. They'd been evacuated to a tiny village she called Buryanguti, and they'd had no idea how complicated it was during the winter to get from there to Cheremkhova, the town that seemed like the nearest stop on the Trans-Siberian Railway line. As it turned out, an ice-choked, unnavigable river lay between. Boats weren't going across the Angara River because there was sludge. Hunks of ice that a boat could navigate around. From that Buryanguti, you had to make a big circle through Irkutsk. Only from there could you cross the river and get a train to Cheremkhova. Hmm. That still didn't fully explain Valya's lateness. I asked Sarah about this. She pondered the question aloud. Was it that Valya's two sisters couldn't leave the teaching jobs they'd found in Buryanguti? Maybe Valya, who was still just in 10th grade, had to wait for a school break? But then it occurred to Sarah what happened. I know why. It was a long trip and there was no railroad. They had to wait until someone was en route to Irkutsk by horse. That's how remote it was. Until 1939, Buryanguti, whose actual name was Buryat Yanguti, had been part of a combined Buryat-Mongol Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. By 1941, it had been incorporated into Russia's Irkutsk province. Not surprisingly, the post was unreliable, and so letters between Sarah and her friends just weren't being delivered. It's December of 1941. Valya, wrapped in her winter coat, finally arrives in Cheremkhova. When she took off her coat, it turned out that she was only wearing underwear beneath it. She had stayed in a hotel in Irkutsk. Someone in that hotel had stolen her skirt. Sarah sounded as though this was a standard hotel experience. She hadn't stayed in many hotels during her life, and Sarah clearly associated them not with clean sheets, Gideon's Bibles, and room service, but with thieves and drunkards. 
We saw this in action when she stayed in her own room at Manhattan's Roosevelt Hotel in 2004, the night before my mother-in-law's funeral. Just another reminder of the family connection here, my mother-in-law was Sarah's first cousin. Sometime in the middle of the night, she was woken by a woman who was screaming and banging on the door. When Sarah reported this to us the next morning, she sounded casual, like criminal and scandalous behavior was par for the course, if you stayed in a hotel. She was drunk, no doubt. But let's go back to Cheremklova. Valya showed up, and now Sarah and her mother had to make a decision about whether to stay there or follow Valya back to Buryan Guti. A lot depended on how they were going to earn their living during the war, especially on whether Gita could find work in her field as a midwife. Buryan Guti seemed like a good possibility. Maybe Mama could find work at a medical point there. But Gita was still on crutches. Sarah decided to go with Valya to check things out. That 17-year-old Valya and the Sarah who, as we've seen, still considered herself a child in relation to her mother, made it to Buryan Guti is incredible. They decided to avoid the train and the long way through Irkutsk, going instead in a direct line across the Angara River. They managed to convince a reluctant boatman to take them across. We, two idiots, persuaded him. When we got to the middle of the river, It was terrifying, terrifying. There were chunks of ice everywhere. But we got across safely. Nothing happened. We made it. Valya's sister Maria was waiting for them on the other side. With a horse. It was an old, sick horse that was not thrilled to be dragging the three of them through the snow. The young women had to trick it into moving, using a creative form of the carrot and the stick, although without, it would appear, the stick. We took turns running in front, dangling before it a piece of hay. After a couple of days, they arrived in Buryanguti, at which point Sarah joined Valya, Maria, and the other sister, whose name was Shura, in their one room in a wooden hut. The wall dividing the four of them from the hut's other room didn't reach the ceiling, and so everything anyone said or did was audible. In that other room were the owners of the hut, ethnic Buryats who spoke a dialect of the Mongolian language. A stove heated the hut, but because the windows were kept closed and the flue from the chimney was only partially open, the whole place was always filled with smoke and fumes. The polluted, stifling air nauseated Sarah and gave her headaches. Though the young women's room was so close to their hosts, they lived completely separate lives, socializing and eating separately. Sarah, who usually thought of herself as different from ethnic Russians because of her Jewish background, felt so foreign in the situation that she included herself as among the only Russians in the village. Unlike their Buryat hosts, she and her fellow Russians, that is, the three sisters, subsisted on the bread rations they received as evacuees. We were half-starved. There was apparently no way just to buy bread, and their rations weren't enough. But it sounds like boredom was their worst problem. They were young, and they were far, far away from everybody they loved and everything they knew. 
They were in a part of the Soviet Union that was still considered alien and wild by European standards. There were even rumors about local bandits who kidnapped women. Shura would sit in front of the hut's window and say, Lord, why don't the bandits come for me? It was that boring. It's hard to imagine they didn't also joke about the three sisters in Anton Chekhov's play, who keep saying how desperate they are to get back to Moscow. Hearing about Sarah's stay in Buryanguti, I had to remind myself that their country was at war. What about the war? The war didn't touch us there. But wasn't she reading the newspaper? Newspapers? I don't remember. She thought again. There were no newspapers in Buryanguti. She did, however, listen to the radio. I listened to the news every day about the retreat, how we gave up this city, how we gave up that city. I asked whether she knew anyone at the front. This elicited an emphatic. Of course. And then she told me about a Moscow comrade, someone she emphasized was not a boyfriend, just in case I was getting ideas and was going to ask her about sex. He had filled out a form claiming her as his wife so she could get additional rations while he was at the front. But he only knew her as Sarah Mabel. He had no idea how to answer the question on the form about her patronymic, the middle name that Russians used to address each other in a formal way. They laughed over there in Moscow. What kind of husband doesn't know his wife's name? Sarah stayed with her friends in Buryanguti for around a month and then they all decided to move to Cheremkhova. Sarah was very worried about her mother, who was on her own with a broken leg. So she left first, alone. She found some Buryat peasants at the local market who agreed to take her back to Cheremkhova for free, on their horse-drawn sled. This was not a comfortable way to travel. It took them several days, and it was still winter. It was still freezing. How did she manage? When I was very cold, I would run alongside the horses. They slept in peasant huts along the way. Sarah still sounded bitter over the fact that even though her traveling companions had meat, milk, and bread, not once did they offer her any of their food. Not one time. Devochka, have a piece of bread. Have a piece of meat. So she ate her own bread and the frozen milk she brought along. Wait, I asked. Frozen milk? They used to pour milk into these big, usually round cups and put them in the snow. The milk would freeze. They do the same thing with meat-filled dumplings, pilmieni. Sarah recalled that Anna Grigoryevna, their host by order of the Soviet back in Cheremkova, would make hundreds at a time and bury them in the snow to keep them from spoiling. Needless to say, no one had refrigerators. When Sarah made it back to Cheremkhova, she was thrilled to see that Gita was walking again and had managed to find work as a sanitary inspector for the Municipal Department of Public Health. They had to construct some kind of lives in Siberia because no one knew how long the war would continue and how long they'd be kept out of Moscow. But this wasn't easy. Sarah had a painful sense of her life slipping further off the rails. She told me how she saw the 1941 British film, That Hamilton Woman, starring Vivian Lee while they were all in Cheremkhova. The tragedy of Lady Hamilton's fall from the upper reaches of British society really spoke to Sarah, who'd lost her father in the Stalinist terror, and who was now in the middle of a place she considered nowhere, 
waiting out a war that the USSR was losing. By 1942, the Germans controlled virtually all the European continent. At some point, her three friends in Buryanguti made it to Cherimkova and found their own place to live. Shura got a job teaching math and physics in a local technical college. Sarah thinks that Valya went back to school. But before her two sisters arrived, Maria came to town and promptly moved into Sarah and Gita's room in Anna Grigorievna's hut. Maria and Sarah both found jobs in the local meat processing plant, where their landlady's son already worked in the sausage-making section. Imagine what an advantage that was during the war. There would always be meat on the table for Anna Grigorievna and her son Vasya. Ironically, the young women's job in the meat processing plant didn't provide access to meat. Sarah and Maria were assigned to a department that fashioned combs and buttons from the bones of the slaughtered animals. There was nothing to glean from the sausage-making section for them, and they often went hungry. Maria and Sarah would come home from work famished and plead with Gita for the whole of their daily bread ration. But Gita would refuse. It was important to save some for breakfast. Yes, Gita remained in charge, now controlling the food of two grown women. Only when Sarah described the scene to me did it occur to her that her mother was probably giving them part of her own bread ration. The meat processing plant ran on a 24-hour schedule, with workers on three rotating eight-hour shifts. This meant that Sarah and Maria sometimes worked at night. Their job in the factory involved placing an item inside a lathe and holding it while the lathe turned. The factory was really cold, and so Sarah and Maria would wrap themselves in shawls and wear mittens on their hands. One time, Sarah's mitten got caught in the machine, and Maria saved Sarah's hand by pulling the off switch in the nick of time. Sarah didn't remain a proletarian for very long. As was her experience when she was taken off the wartime production line in the machine shop of the Seismology Institute in Moscow, the bosses at the plant quickly promoted her to controller. There was still no meat to bring home, but now she worked in a small office lined with shelves that held the combs and buttons they manufactured. I assumed that Sarah, the Muscovite with two years of higher education under her belt, would have felt like a fish out of water among members of the working class in a small Siberian town. But she said this wasn't the case. We have a very good Russian expression. Never consider someone else more stupid than yourself, or you'll be the moron. I believe that. Yes, she was more educated and better read, but they were all young and they apparently became friends, or at least had friendly relations. She told me a story that illustrated this, along with what she admitted was her youth and naivete. As someone with an actual office, Sarah let her co-workers store their lunch and personal items on her shelves. One day she accidentally broke open a fellow worker's package and found that it not only contained a meal, but combs that the plant manufactured. That is, state property. She was controller. This was on her. What should I do? Stealing isn't permitted. But I also couldn't bring myself to tell someone straight to her face, you are a thief. This really upset her. 
After some agonized reasoning, she wound up deciding not to turn the person in. There was a war on. The young woman who'd stolen the combs could have been in for some very serious penalties. So when the package's owner came to retrieve it, Sarah solemnly reassured her that she keep this between them, but that the combs needed to be given back. The young woman handed Sarah the combs and walked out of the office without saying a word. When Sarah went to the factory floor a few minutes later, she noticed that all the workers, the boys and girls as she called them, were laughing. The thief not only hadn't been chastened, she'd blabbed about her encounter with Sarah to all their co-workers, who found it hilarious. A light went on in Sarah's brain. She'd seen combs and buttons from the factory for sale at the local market. All the boys and girls were pocketing and selling state property. Sarah had experience with a more serious criminal when her landlady's son, Vanya, returned from prison and, of course, moved right back to the hut. Vanya, who Sarah believed had been convicted of murder, was around 30 years old, and he clearly enjoyed having an attractive young Muscovite in his house. Vanya would wait outside the meat processing plant to walk Sarah home at the end of her night shift, and he'd ask her to tell him stories about life in faraway Moscow. She was hanging out with an ex-con who'd been in prison for murder? Weren't she and her mother afraid of him? Evidently not. Just like Sarah had an explanation for the woman banging on her door at the Roosevelt Hotel, she had one for Vanya's crime. Maybe he'd been drunk. I couldn't help but wonder if Sarah and this young man she described as a tall mujik had a romance. All I learned from her was, He always behaved like a gentleman. Vanya even saved Sarah and her mother when they lost the card that entitled them to their bread rations. No card, no bread. No bread. That opened the door to even greater hunger. But Vanya gave them his card. Sarah told him, I can't accept it. How will you survive? Vanya had it covered. He got a job in Cheremkhova's bread factory, and so he didn't have to worry about his rations. Do you think I gave it back to him? I still have it. That means we survived because of his card. Sarah was adamant that the government wouldn't have helped them in any way, shape, or form. She and her mother were, however, entitled to eat lunch in a cafeteria. It didn't serve bread, and the food was dreadful. But at least the cafeteria provided hot food in the form of soup and some kind of main course often made from the byproducts of the animals they slaughtered at the plant. One dish resembled a piece of meat, but it was blood that had been dried and salted and then fried like a cutlet. I wanted to know what would have happened to their diet if Vanya hadn't given them his card. We would have eaten only potatoes. They had potatoes! In the spring of 1942, they planted potatoes. They farmed? Like peasants? Sarah patiently explained that just outside town they'd been given a small plot of land and dibs on a horse that helped them prepare the soil for planting. They were novices at farming, but they watched what others did and they managed to come up with a crop of their own. By the time the potatoes were ready to harvest in autumn 1942, they'd moved to their own one-room Cheremkhova apartment. There, they cooked the potatoes on a kerosene burner. I asked, was there a bathroom? 
As always, Sarah found this kind of question weird and rude. But my curiosity about toilets was rooted in my experiences as a foreigner in the 1980s Soviet Union who couldn't get over what I encountered in public bathrooms. In our dormitory, designated as it was for capitalist foreigners, there was a bathroom with several stalls on each floor. Each commode had a detachable wooden seat that the Soviets in the dorm tended to leave on the floor. There was no toilet paper, but sometimes people kindly left pieces of newspaper for others' use. Newspaper, of course, could not be flushed. Our toilets were cleaned regularly by the dormitory janitor, but the bathroom still wasn't a place you'd want to linger. No one came to clean the toilets in the neighboring socialist foreigners' dormitory. One resident, a grad student from East Germany I met in a Russian language class, snapped a Polaroid photo late one night of one of their stalls. Let's just say it looked like the surrounding area had gotten more use than the actual toilet. Public facilities tended to be equally gross. Outside the big cities, we weren't surprised to find dirty troughs and pits. But things weren't much better in what was then known as Leningrad, the elegant northern capital. The stench of urine greeted me every time I entered the building of the prestigious language faculty at Leningrad State University. I basically structured my day around pit stops to the nearby hotels designed for foreign visitors. There, you could find clean stalls and even toilet paper. Most of my Soviet friends lived in one room of what had been designated as communal apartments, which meant they shared the kitchen and bathrooms with the other tenants. These also weren't very nice. Only in the apartment blocks that were going up in the city's outskirts did people have their own bathrooms. And these tended to be clean because only one family was using them. But outside of the fancy hotels for foreigners, no one had toilet paper. When I went to the USSR for my nine-month stay, I came armed with packages of tissues and several rolls of toilet paper that I parceled out for myself very carefully. Needless to say, there was no toilet paper when the Mabels lived in their Krasnogorsk barracks. No one even knew what it was. I brought a piece of newspaper with me, and sometimes there was newspaper attached to a nail. She was a little defensive about this. One time, she insisted to me that there's no way my father, who was a few years older than she, and who grew up as the son of Jewish immigrants in New York City, no way he had toilet paper in the 1920s and 30s. So I called him, and I asked. 87-year-old Sylvester Bernstein thought for a minute, and then in a mock serious tone said, I can't speak for the people in Brooklyn, but in the Bronx, we had toilet paper. No, Sarah and Gita didn't have a bathroom in their Cheremkova place. They used an outhouse, just as they'd done when they lived with Anna Grigorievna. Next time, we'll look at Sarah's experiences in Cheremkova's public welfare department and what awaited Sarah and her mother when the war finally ended. Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. 
Robert A. Emmons Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yeryona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FDEP Beat. Additional music for our series is by Poddington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavodsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah's Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice.